Welcome, adventurers. This is MuseCast 14, your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea. I'm your co-host, Emmy. And I'm your co-host, Remix Sakura. And I've got a question for you. Oh? Yeah, out of these three people, who do you think you would have a more interesting conversation with? Lise, Minfilia, or a rock? <laughs> One of the Facebook groups that I was part of recently had a survey with just that question, and poor Minfilia, unfortunately, was voted the most boring out of all three of them. A rock! Out of about 500 people, 300 people of those would choose to have a conversation with a rock, and only about 60 people would talk to Minfilia. But a rock isn't even a person. <laughs> I know. So, I mean, obviously, Minfilia has really just a terrible rep within the FF14 community. And this really seems to be no exception among the roleplay community as well. So today we'd like to take a little look at Minfilia here and examine maybe why that could be. And also why you should maybe give her a second chance if you don't like her. Indeed, indeed. So... As you might remember, we did a series of episodes on the Scions of the Seventh Dawn. So how could we forget their leader, Minfilia, the antecedent? But as we dived into her character details, her lore details, the issue of the fandom opinion of her was just unavoidable. And it led us down a whole interesting path about how female characters are written. Because it's safe to say that Mephelia is by far the least favorite female character, if not the least favorite character of all. But part of that has to do with this attitude that, oh, she's the damsel in distress. She never does any work. She's useless. Which, unfortunately, are things that are said more about female characters than about male characters. It certainly seems that way. And I mean, there is some truth to it. She does end up getting kidnapped twice, after all. <laughs> and within the 2.0 story, at least, you really don't see her much outside of the Waking Sands. But that said, we do actually get a look at her history for those of you who are familiar with and or have played version 1.0 of Final Fantasy XIV here. So why don't we get a little bit into her backstory, just a very quick overview. Sure. So, Minfilia who was born with the name Acelia, was actually born in Alamigo and was the daughter of a spy named Warburton who worked as a double agent for both the Alamegan Resistance and the Garleans. And one day, when she's about 12 years old, he takes her to Ulda, where he meets an unfortunate accidental death by Gubu. That's not a good way to go. And there's a whole backstory as to why and how that happened. But the end result is that she loses her father and she ends up being raised by Flamine, her adoptive mother, with Thancred as sort of an older brother type figure. So she is natively Alamegan, but she's spent most of her life at this point in Ulda. So it's because of her friendship with Thancred and because of Thancred's friendship with Louiswa that Minfilia discovers that she has the Echo, and very strongly so. So much of the 1.0 storyline revolves around her forming an organization called the Path of the Twelve. And you, the Warrior of Light, of course, also have the Echo. You join up with this organization, get a Path Companion, meet a much younger version of Minfilia, and get some help in your training of your use of the Echo, which behaves much the same way. It gives you random flashbacks. 
Now that means that from the first time we meet Minfilia, she's already acting as a leader. And it seems like, in 1.0 at least, you get a little bit of character growth from there. But then we move into 2.0. And in 2.0, she's already sort of this established leader, almost like an administrator of the Scions. And she's the one who delegates the work to you as a warrior of light. So during 2.0, I mean, yes, you do get to meet her a little bit, but you only really get to see her as maybe more of this like taskmaster at first. And during this point, you are stuck then running to and from Vesper Bay, just return to the Waking Sands. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that message. Actually, fun fact about that, there was a search done on the number of times that the player in 2.0 was asked to return to the Waking Sands to speak to Minfilia. Over 40 times that happened. Dang, Over son. 40. And imagine you're running to and from the Waking Sands. It doesn't have an Aetherite nearby, so you're stuck either taking the ferry from Limsa Liminza or you're running there from uh, Western Thanalan and their Aetherite um, down in the south, I believe it is. In Horizon. In Horizon. I completely You can take a chocobo border. <laughs> you can, but it still takes so much time. It's so you know, boring and you really don't get to see a whole lot of growth at first. So for your average player, yes, it's going to be extremely annoying. And the only reason for it, of course, is because of those dang monitorists. Oh, yeah. Pursue Lolorito. This is one of those things that we can definitely squarely blame on Lolorito. The in-universe reason given for why there isn't an Aetherite in Vesper Bay because he literally wants to spite the scions. Hashtag blame the monitorists. <laughs> Let's make that a thing. Um, the other thing that I think people find a little bit annoying, shall we say, is that she doesn't really talk to you over Link Pearl. She doesn't say, okay, you know, well done. I see you've completed your task. Now go somewhere else. No, you have to run all the way back to the Waking Sands just to be told, okay, now do some more fetch quests for me. <laughs> so, yes, it's really annoying. Yes, it's really, really boring. But I wonder, is that the only reason why people hate Minfilia? I think this is a case of shooting the messenger. I think that Minfilia just happened to be the messenger of all this annoying back and forth that wasn't actually her fault. So our frustration and our anger just got transferred to her. And it's not until later in the story that you find... Her character development, you find out, oh, Louis Swat chose her to be his successor, and he was a big hero to Eorzea and lots of great things about her. That doesn't come till later until your impression of her is already set in stone as, God, that annoying chick. I mean, at that point, you've already gone through defeating so many different primals. 2.0 just goes on for a long, long, long time. And it isn't really until, you know, 2.1 that we move to Mordona and that we finally get to see a little bit more of, of Minfilia. But you have to go through all of that other original Realm Reborn stuff. And by that point, it's very, very hard to go back to see her as anything else, really. Yeah. First impressions make a huge difference. Yeah. She gets more development in the time that... We run from 2.1 to 2.55. Of course, in Mordona, there's an Aetherite, but the damage is done. We also have to keep in mind regarding the Link Pearls that they're not exactly the most secure mode of communication. They're not 
exactly like today's cell phones. And I think that one of the reasons why you've always got to pray return to the Waking Sands is so that you could speak in private, because that's the only way to transmit sensitive information. It's not exactly safe to talk about details about primals and crystal raids over Link Pearl because those can easily be intercepted by enemy forces, Garleans, Assians. Yeah, that's very true. And you know, I like to think of it as maybe in like the very early days of cell phones where you didn't have as strong of a network, as extensive as a network everywhere else, because you end up hearing a lot of static. You have a lot of situations like in the most recent expansion where you don't get your clear messages. You only get bits and pieces as your signal fades out. So it's not quite as reliable as being able to go somewhere in person. And so I wonder, you know, what might affect this Link Pearl and Link Shell network. Exactly, exactly. So I don't think we should make a one-to-one comparison as if Minfilia could just talk to us as if a Link Pearl were like a cell phone. Yeah, or at least like your modern day cell phone. It's kind of more, we like to think of it as more like a walkie-talkie sort of thing. I agree. Now, I'd like to discuss how all this relates to the treatment of female characters in FF14 in general. Because Minfilia is something of an anomaly. That is to say, there's so many other great, fantastic female characters. You may know who some of our favorites are. (laughs) Of course. I don't even think we need to mention them in this. We've mentioned them so many different times. But there are just so many different female characters in general with a diverse range of personalities different communication styles, and most importantly, I think, you know, different motivations. And it's not something that's very flat and one note. The vast majority of these female characters just are written in such a vibrant and really believable way. Exactly. So I would never accuse the Square Enix team of writing in misogyny into the story. Whatever misogyny is directed towards Minfilia, It comes from the fans, not from Square Enix. And that's really unfortunate. Do you think it's misogyny? I think that's part of it. I think that if Minfilia were male, she wouldn't get hated on quite so much. For example, Uriange. What the hell does he do during the vast majority of the story? He reads books, and yet he never gets called useless. Just because he participates in one fight, okay, that makes him useful. Because he has the ability to fight and he never gets kidnapped. I mean, what is the big difference between the two of them? I've never heard Uriange called useless, even though, by all accounts, he should be called useless. Because (laughs) what is he doing for most of the time? He's just vaguely off going, quote unquote, reading tomes. I mean, that said, though, it seems like characters like Uriange have had a little bit more opportunity to for example, be featured in cutscenes where, for example, Uriange is actively working behind the scenes, like in the Warrior of Darkness arc. Yes, neither of them fight very much. Minfilia, I don't believe, fought really at all. It doesn't seem like she's very skilled in combat. But that said, it seems like Minfilia does have some strength in diplomacy, where, in my opinion, there's a bit more of a distinct divide between your harder forms of combat so somebody who's able to fight, and then your soft power, which is, of course, your ability to coerce people, to be able to reason with people, 
Oriange, for example, helps to fight people, but he is still, it seems like, somebody who might have a little bit of soft power. He's able to reason with both the Asians and the Warrior of Darkness in that arc, but Menphilia, you don't really get to see using that hard power, so I wonder, maybe part of it has to do with the fact that, yes, she doesn't fight, and maybe some people could be overlooking this fact that Yes, you don't get to see her using it all that much, but she is very good at diplomacy and being able to assign tasks and really coordinate. Imagine running an organization like the Scions, where you have all these different diverse people and having them get along. Might that be something that Minfilia helps with? I wouldn't be surprised. Indeed, indeed. I mean, she runs the Scions of the Seventh Dawn, and the Scions of the Seventh Dawn are a lot more expansive than just you, the warrior of light, actually experience. I'll tell you one thing. The person who delegates work to you is not called useless. That's called your boss. Minfilia is your boss. Do you call your boss useless? Do you? Huh? I certainly <laughs> hope not. I mean, if you if you do have a boss who isn't doing any work, typically that's considered signs of like having not a great boss. But good bosses, it seems like, you know, they they actually are good and effective delegators. And Minfilia was that. Minfilia was able to assign tasks to the Warrior of Light that she thought that they were the best for. And in the background, Tataru is taking care of all the administrative tasks. She's managing Tataru. She's also managing a number of other minor scions, such as Arinvald, who gets bumped up in importance later on. But in a very, very early piece of dialogue, Arnvald talks about how he's going to have his first meeting with the antecedent and how he's being assigned a mission. So in between assigning you all the really, really important missions like to fight primals, there's a whole host of other scions that she's got to manage to send on less dramatic missions. You know, the stuff that Arnvald and co are doing isn't exactly main scenario material, but there's a lot of problems in Eorzea that need solving, and the Scions are solving them, and sometimes it's minor Scions solving them, and it's Minfilia running all of them. Tataru even says, in a piece of dialogue, all work and no play makes Minfilia a dull Scion. She comments on how hard Minfilia works. When we're moving to Mordona, she discusses all of the connections that she's made in Vesper Bay, the vendors, business people. These are the people that she deals with every day. She's not doing nothing. She's doing boss work. She's doing a different kind of work. It's not fighting. It's not in the field, but it's super duper important. And I mean, of course, some people may not enjoy that. You know, it's not an exciting job for sure, but it's still a job. It's, it's not necessarily entirely useless. And on top of that, you've got to give her credit for not only being the person that Louis Watt chose as his successor, and Elf Grandpa Jesus does not make bad decisions. She's one of the strongest Echo users on Heidelin, and she's instructing you and everybody else in the Scions in the use of the Echo, because that's what brings them all together. She really is. And actually, her, her use of the Echo, I should throw in here, is extremely important to the reason why she gets kidnapped. Because if you take a look at when she gets kidnapped by the Garleans, by Livia, you realize that there are so many Scions who were killed in there. Naraxia, for example, got killed. Rip. You see, and you're tasked with, you know, finding a resting place for these corpses. It's just a bloodbath that goes on during this conflict. 
and yet Minfilia was spared. Minfilia was the one who ended up getting captured, and why? Because she has the echo, and she's very strong, and she's somebody that the Garleans can learn from. So, clearly she has some sort of use to them, at least. Yeah, she was the valuable hostage. Unfortunately, all of this put together just makes her seem not only useless to some people, but weak. And to a lot of people, what they want to see in their female characters is the strong female character. So much so that quote-unquote strong female character has become something of a trope in entertainment. And that's going to be our next topic of discussion. But you can't have every single woman, like you imagine women in real life. You can't have every single woman that you meet end up being, you know, a sassy woman, somebody who's physically capable but has no-nonsense attitude. Is every single person like that? I personally don't think so. I'm certainly not one of them. But, <laughs> you know, you, you have these characters very often in, in fiction who take on this strong female character, quote-unquote, who... You know, they they have that sort of personality, but then their character just kind of stops. It just falls flat. And so, you know, beyond that sort of, I am a strong woman, I'm a woman and a fighter, it seems as though they may not actually have any other traits beyond that. That's all they need to be interesting. You know, and not only that, but this sort of character is the type who would be, you know, still depicted as, I can do all this stuff, but I can do it in high heels. I'm very, you know, I'm a very beautiful woman. I can do all this in, in tight clothing, and I'm going to go please, you know, the the male demographic. Or I'm going to please, you know, as many demographics as I can by both being, <laughs> by both being sexy and by being strong. And of course, some of these trope-like strong female characters tend to be presented as a love interest to a male character. And so they'll only show that they have, you know, a vulnerable side to that person for the sake of, oh, we want to build a relationship. Ooh, so, swoon. Yeah. So, I, I mean, in that now. case, <laughs> in that case, it's like what sort of independence they did have, it's all drawn back anyways, because really all they're there to do is be a supporting character to your your you know, male protagonist. Exactly, exactly. So Minfilia certainly is not one of those, obviously. She's not really a fighter, but you still have somebody who is, I think, largely seen as, like, a sexy character. She got that midriff going on. Yeah, she does. <laughs> but despite not having strong female character tropey traits, she has depth which makes her more interesting to me than the tropey strong female character. The reason really why I can't stand that type of character is not only are they all incredibly shallow and all the same, but they reflect this unfortunate attitude that women can only become valuable and important and interesting, likable characters in any work of fiction by emulating masculinity, by being physically strong, being emotionally stoic, being no nonsense. What they're doing is essentially emulating masculinity. In a traditional sense, of course. And throwing away all of their feminine traits unless it's to please some kind of male lead. And that message in itself, unfortunately, is misogynistic. It's presenting masculinity as inherently superior to femininity. It's saying that females 
to be valid have to act like men. They can't act traditionally feminine. Yeah, and so unfortunately, these traditionally feminine traits, like like having compassion, having people skills, you know, being caring, empathetic, and, you know, of course, dealing with administrative work, it's sort of a poke at saying, yes, those things are weak. Those things are boring. And yes, unfortunately, those things are useless. Now, is that true? Of course not. I certainly think not. So what can you do then? What can you do to have good fictional characters? And and what do you think would make a good fictional character? Well, really, at the end of the day, what matters is not a character's gender role, whether they're overly masculine, overly feminine, but their uniqueness, their depth, their complexity, and their relatability, all the things that make good characterization. Female characters can absolutely be interesting and valuable to a plot, even if they are more traditionally feminine, which you could say Menphilia is, not being a fighter. Because she's not a background prop, she is a leader, she has complexity, she has depth. Now, I'm going to be the first person to say that badass female characters who are fighters are not all bad. I mean, how could I, being the big fan of Moab that I am? That's true. Yeah, Moab, I mean, she she is definitely a fighter. You see her taking part in battles. You see her during the Calamity, or at least you read about it during the Calamity. And so, yes, she is a fighter. But the caveat with that is that you've got to be well-developed. And I think that really goes for regardless of whether it's somebody who is a fighter or somebody who isn't. Gender aside, just make sure that you've got development there. Yeah. And with female characters, I think especially it's, for whatever reason, for some people, just very, very hard to get out of this very shallow, like, strong female character or damsel in distress trope. You know, there are tropes both ways. And so, you know, you, you want to make sure that it doesn't get too tropey, that you have things that are beyond this whole sense of, I need a man, I don't need a man, or help me, I need such and such. You need a bit more detail than that. Absolutely. And Merlweb is more than just the badass female. She has more depth to her, and that's why she's so interesting to me. On the flip side, being agnostic to gender roles also means that it's okay for male characters to display traditionally feminine traits. It's also okay for them to display traditionally masculine traits. They can be yes. big manly badasses. They can, they can try to take care of other people. Because gender is just not the most important thing at the end of the day. It's character complexity. And femininity and masculinity are equally valuable. So let's let's sum this up really quickly then. A strong character for me is somebody who's written normally. So you don't end up having a trope. They aren't written as a plot device, but it's somebody who is complex, who has their own, you know, complicated systems of motivation, who have a whole bunch of different character traits. It just makes somebody interesting. And so personally... I am completely on the bandwagon that I hate the work Minfilia made us do. I hated returning to the Waking Sands. And yes, I think her personality and her, her voice acting, especially uh, seeing as I do a good amount of voice acting myself, it was very bland. Especially that voice acting. It did not help a single bit. But despite all this, despite hating what we actually did for her, despite the fetch quests themselves, she still is a beautiful character. 
And she's played a crucial role for the Scions, especially in that Warrior of Darkness arc. It's just that it took a while for us to really learn about it. So while she isn't my favorite character, she's definitely not the strongest character in the physical sense, and I think she's not the strongest character, period, as far as development. She could be a lot worse. There are worse characters out there, and at the very least, I don't think she was useless. Not at all. So we're standing up for Minvelia. She is all right by us. Yeah. Now, if you, if you, of course, listen to this and you still hate Minvelia, by all means, continue hating Minvelia. We're just here to say maybe, you know, there's a little bit more to the character than meets the eye. Or how about, if you're going to hate her, do it for the right reasons. <laughs> yeah. Now, how can we relate this all back to RP? Because... We, as role players, are also writing female characters of our own in many cases. And I think in these lessons that we're learning here, reflecting on Menphilia, it's important for us to creatively examine within ourselves our own biases, our own misogyny, internalized or not, because unfortunately, that's the society we live in and how we treat RP characters or other people's original characters can sometimes fall prey to that as well. And I think that's especially true if you are a role player who does not actually identify as female, but you're writing a female character. It's important to examine the way that you're writing that female character. Yeah, because unfortunately, the society that we live in does kind of shape an unconscious sort of bias, especially about female characters. And so that can just in very, very subtle ways lead your character that you're developing to also display sorts of tropes. For sure, for sure. And even though everyone, I'm sure, dear listeners, strives for gender equality and believes in gender equality for ourselves and in the real world and in Eorzea as well, there's something to be said for writing characters that in character have bad attitudes, negative attitudes, such as sexism, such as racism, or classism, or other forms of discrimination. That also exists in RP, and it exists in the world. So we're not saying all your RP has to be squeaky clean all the time, or not reflect the grittiness and dirtiness of the real world, because sometimes there is a case for it. But use it to create discourse around those subjects. Don't make a sexist character to promote sexism. Create a sexist character to promote anti-sexism, to start a dialogue about it. Right. We're not saying that you need to stay away from these nitty-gritty things, because they are real-life things that occur within our world, too. You know, when you do it carefully, when you do it with a full awareness of all sides of the issue, writing these scenarios can actually be a really, really good way to start a conversation about it. Maybe it can lead to some sort of change, even if it's a small one, and understanding what things may be like for other people who experience these issues. So, for example, if you have a character that, say, steals, that doesn't mean that you're promoting stealing. That just means maybe you're examining the motives behind stealing. Maybe you're just looking at it from other sides. And so being able to discuss it directly or indirectly through this world that we have within Final Fantasy XIV is great. 
It's a lot easier sometimes than bringing up these issues in real life because it's fiction. It doesn't quite give people the emotional reaction that it does in real life. So it can be a fantastic medium for discourse. And we create characters that come from all kinds of backgrounds and have all kinds of moral ambiguities. That's good. Not everybody can be a goody two-shoes. So feel free to bring in these sort of complex issues to the story because it really just makes the world a lot more interesting. Indeed. And again, we just want to encourage everybody to examine their own writing, their own character creation for these biases, not to eliminate them, but so that we have more complex female characters in our RP scenes. And if you yourself have never had the experience of being female, this is especially important. We just don't want to see female characters that we RP with be tropey because that's not fun for us. It's more fun for everybody if gender is not the primary character trait. Write more complex female characters. Write more complex male characters. Write better characters. And RP will be better for everybody, including you. And that's all that we have for writing complex female characters. I sure learned a lot. I actually have come to respect Menphilia a whole lot more than I did before. Indeed, you have to at least respect her and the role that she's played and the importance to the story. And I still wonder what the hell Oriange is doing half the time when he's just, you know, quote unquote, reading tomes. <laughs> so what have you been doing recently? Ooh. Reading tomes? Is it time for stories? It is indeed time for stories. So every episode, just because we love playing the game so very much, we recount a Final Fantasy XIV related story that has happened to us between the last episode and now. Now, of course, the last episode we had was a mini-sode of sorts, but we figured we would give you something that was a little bit more recent as well. So would you like to start for this week? Well... I haven't been reading tomes, but I have been swiping my tombstone lovingly. But every time I do, it says nothing happens. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but I'm... So the companion app came out quite a while ago, actually. And as part of having a character linked, and thankfully this applies to all the characters on a service account I found, you can get the slash tombstone emote. Which makes... An elegant tombstone behaves something like a cell phone, except, well, nothing happens because then they'd have to write smartphones into the lore of the story, <laughs> and they don't want to bother with that. So no matter how many times you tap your tombstone, nothing will happen. That is unfortunate. Well, the big news is that patch 4.4 came out. That is true. And patch 4.4, of course, came with a new raid tier. Now, for my own story, I haven't been raiding recently because, well, a bunch of different reasons, mostly involving my old job, but as a result, I was very far behind, and I didn't want to really get involved in raiding just yet. So I thought, okay, well, how do I want to spend my patch 4.4 when it comes out? And then I thought, well, I could do the main scenario, but we could end up with a situation like Rabban Extreme. <laughs> when uh, Stormblood came out. So I thought, okay, well, maybe that's out. How about 
we do some crafting. Well, no, actually, that's not a good idea either because I hate crafting and I'm not geared up and I didn't want to spend all that money in preparation for the new patch. But making money, as as any true Uldan would say, is a good thing. Mm. Uh, you know, in my case, it's got to be done through, you know, good means. But so then I thought, okay, well, there's a lot of people doing the world progression race. What if I gathered for them? So during patch 4.4, I actually asked around. I asked a couple of friends, and one of my friends had a raid group that was going to be involved in this race. So we made an agreement where I would gather for eight sets of gear, eight full sets of gear, all the mats for their group. Now, this turned out to be a little bit more than expected, and uh, Remix actually helped out toward the end of it, uh, but we did it. And so I logged on as soon as patch 4.4 came out and just did nothing but gather away. And uh, I got paid for it, so now I'm rich. Woo. Uh, at least in-game, I'm, I'm rich now. And I, I may end up dropping more money because I want to relocate the FC house. Me and my housing game, you know me. Um, <laughs> so you can't stay away. You can't stay away. I really can't. Actually, halfway during this episode, you, dear listener, of course, won't hear when I got up to do it, but we took a pause so that I could check all the housing demolition timers. Yeah, I play hard when it comes to Gilgamesh housing. Anyway, so, yeah, long story short <laughs> here. Uh, I spent my patch 4.4 doing gathering for the world first race, and it was a lot of fun. It took a lot of time. It took more time than I thought it would. But it was still fun. As somebody who legitimately likes gathering, it wasn't bad. And it was certainly better than making money crafting. I say to the co-host who crafts all day, to each uh, their own. yes. Ah, uh, yes. Now, even though I wasn't up early, and though I did spend my first few hours of patch day helping Emmy gather so that she could get some sleep. I did need sleep after that. I... <laughs> did not sleep at all the night before because I was so nervous. Despite that, I did want to be a day one four-star crafter. The problem was, of course, my melds. My melds were all wrong. I end up figuring that my only solution is to re-meld. Oh my Repent a meld. <laughs> now, I didn't have to do all my gear again. And, of course, now there's the retrieve materia command which will at least get me back the materia that I have put into my gear, but it doesn't get me back the materia that I blew up during the original pentameld. <laughs> and it also doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll get the melds back. Exactly, exactly. But I put all the money I had left and all the scripts I had left into getting new materia so I could basically change my stat weights, meet the craftsmanship requirements, meet the CP requirements, and then put whatever I had left over into control. It was just a different stat balance that was needed for four star. But yes, I do spend a great deal of my time crafting. And I also prefer to make my money through Party Finder rather than the market board. There's something kind of nice about using someone else's mats and then just getting a tip. And it also means you get to meet the people whose gear you're making. There's something kind of nice about being able to look them in the face of their avatar anyway. You do a little emote when you're done. You get to hear them say thanks. It's a little bit more personal than the market board, and I get to know people on the server. I have had people that have been recurring clients, essentially, because I've crafted them so many things. So that's what we've been up to, being scrubs. There you have <laughs> Not it. raiding. <laughs> 
how to get rich quick without raiding. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but yeah, how how we got rich, I guess, during uh four point four. Hmm. Look for Natsuki Maketboy in your nearest Gilgamesh party finder. And that concludes our episode. So I bet you're wondering, what is next? We've got one of the interviews we promised you, dear listeners. We do. We're going to have Wanderer Sabaku, the founder of A Stage Reborn. And a good friend of both of ours. Indeed. He's going to be talking about his own RP experiences on many different servers. Some people may not know, but A Stage Reborn has had some aspects of roleplay that they have incorporated into some of their efforts. Not all of them, but some of them. And a good number of people, including Wanderer, are roleplayers. Bet you didn't know that. Yes. So, please look forward to it. Indeed. Between now and then, you can always get in touch with us online Visit MusecastXIV.com for all your MuseCast needs. Yes, we also have a good number of other social media that you can interact with us on. We, of course, have our Facebook page. Look up MuseCastXIV and you will find us. We have a Twitter page, at MuseCastXIV. And you can find us on Discord. Just go to our website, hosted through Tumblr, so musecastxiv.com, and there will be a link to our Discord channel where you can talk about the show and roleplay in general. You can also find us streaming on Twitch. Go to twitch.tv slash musecastxiv. And of course, you can listen to more of our MuseCast episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Be sure to subscribe to us, share us, follow us all that lovely stuff. And if you like what you heard and you would like to support us in some way, you can do that through a number of ways, actually. You can donate to us through either Patreon or PayPal. On Patreon, for a monthly donation, you can get access to things like bonus content, all the things that we wanted to talk about but just didn't have time to do, or get access to episodes 24 hours before they actually come out, which is always great. You can also make a one-time donation to us on PayPal. And for both of those, go to our website and click on the shiny blue buttons. Very, very shiny. You can also now subscribe to us on our Twitch channel. We are Twitch affiliates. We are. Now all of the donations from our Twitch subscriptions go back into Twitch production itself, not so much the actual podcast production. So if you're interested in our podcast efforts, we recommend that you donate through Patreon or through PayPal. Either way, no matter what you decide to do, we will be very, very appreciative. Indeed. It all goes back to creating entertaining content for you, dear listeners. So we will see you again real soon, joined by Wanderer Savagu. And until then, happy adventuring, and we will see you next time. Yep. See you next time. Thanks for listening to MuseCast 14. Tune in next time when we'll be interviewing Wanderer Savagu. Happy adventuring, and may you ever walk in the light of the crystal. <laughs>